our most gracious Father, as we gather today, we are so thankful for the opportunity to gather even in this way and in this place. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us good weather. Thank you that you have given us technology that makes this possible. Thank you that you have given us members of our body who know how to make this technology work. We thank you for all these things, Lord, and we're grateful for them. Lord, we come before you today with frustration and grief at this situation with the COVID-19 virus, and yet with patience, knowing that you are sovereign over all, and rejoicing in the fact that you have given us this day to worship you. And so now as we come to your word, our most gracious Father, we ask that you would use your word to work in us, to change us, to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray that your word would confront us. We pray that it would edify us and strengthen us in our faith. Fill us with conviction where we need to be filled with conviction and fill us with comfort where we need to be filled with comfort. That Christ would be exalted and glorified in this time. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at John chapter 7, verses 11 to 13 today. John chapter 7, verses 11 to 13. In the late 30s, 1930s, almost 100 years ago, a man by the name of George Gallup came up with this idea of polling Americans on a fairly regular basis in order to determine what we now know as the presidential job approval ratings. And it's kind of interesting to note that the president with the highest approval rating of all time was President George W. Bush, uh, who also came very close, by the way, to getting the lowest score of all times. Uh, he was edged out by President Harry S. Truman in two separate polls. But if you followed the presidential job approval ratings for any length of time, one of the things you'll start to realize is it really doesn't reveal that much. It really doesn't reflect much of anything significant. A person's opinion, a person's personal opinion of the president really turns out to be kind of an irrelevant thing. Your opinion about presidents and your opinion about politicians might be kind of a meaningless thing. Your opinion of them might not really matter ultimately, but there is one person of whom we cannot say that what you think of him does not truly matter. It matters not only for the here and now, but it matters for eternity, and that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. What you think of him matters. It matters profoundly. It matters very deeply because it matters eternally. James Montgomery Boyce tells of a time when the radio staff uh, of, his, of his radio program went out onto the streets of Philadelphia to ask people, who is Jesus Christ? And, you know, there are a lot of questions um, that you can get wrong, and it really won't matter. But this is one question that, as we're going to see today, you cannot afford to get wrong. 
But the responses that the radio show staff received really reflected the same thing I imagine you might uh, find if you were to go out and stand in front of Walmart or Home Depot and in Linwood here and ask people the same question, who is Jesus Christ? I think what you'd find is the same thing they found, and that is that there would be a deep confusion, a profound confusion, about who Jesus is. One woman responded to their question, uh, quote, Jesus Christ was a man who thought he was God, end quote. Another woman said, quote, Jesus Christ is pure essence of energy, end quote, whatever that means. Uh, a man responded by saying, quote, I think that's something you have to decide for yourself, end quote, as if he was being asked what his favorite flavor of ice cream was. Uh, he added this, he said, quote, but, but he had some beautiful ideas, end quote. Some others said, He's an individual who lived 2,000 years ago who was interested in the social betterment of all classes of people, end quote. Or, quote, he was well-liked, he was a good man, while others simply said, I don't know. And Dr. Boyce concluded by uh, observing that out of all the people who were surveyed, not a single one of them could say, I don't care. Not a single one could say, I don't care who Jesus is. Now, there are a lot of things that we're free to not care about. But Jesus, who he is, who he was and who he is, is not one of those things that we have the freedom to not care about. So who is Jesus? That is a, a question that every single person on the face of the planet, whether in previous generations or in our generation or in the generations to come, must answer. So as we continue in our study of John chapter 7 today, we're going to see that even the people of Jesus' own time were asking this very question. If you remember in the previous, chapter, uh, the previous passage that we looked at last week, we saw that um, you know, his brothers uh, tempted him to go into Jerusalem and display his glory. Uh, whatever his brothers thought of him, one thing was certain, they, they, they didn't believe in him. In fact, it seems apparent that they couldn't stand him. They, they, they wanted him dead. Can you imagine having a, a, a perfect brother? A brother who never got anything wrong? A, a brother who never sinned? A brother who never did anything wrong? Can you imagine how that stirred up their flesh? That's exactly what seems to have happened. They, they seem to have wanted him dead because they realized that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wanted uh, to murder Jesus, and so his brothers encouraged him, tempted him to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths in a very public manner and to show off his miracles for everyone. Now, if you think about it, is it not just like crazy to think that these are people, we're talking about people who, who believed that Jesus could do miracles. That, that's why they wanted to go to Jerusalem and do these things publicly. They believed that he was capable of doing miracles, and yet they did not believe that he was Messiah. They hated him. And why? Well, I'd say ultimately, for the same reason that anybody hates him, and that is because they love their sin. So Jesus told his brothers to go up to Jerusalem without him, but he ended up going secretly so as to avoid being killed before his time had come. And so in our passage today, we're going to see what people who were at the Feast of Booths, celebrating the, the Feast of Booths, what they were saying about Jesus, what they thought of Jesus. But let me just cut to the chase. 
The point of this passage is that we, like all people, must know who Jesus is in order that we may rightly believe in him. We, like all people, must know who Jesus is in order that we may rightly believe in him. So let's start by reading our passage. Uh, Chapter 7, verses 11 to 13. John writes this. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So the priests are asking, Where is he? Where is Jesus? They know that he is required by Jewish law to be there. And so they're asking, where is he? What a tragic thing that they were seeking him, and yet they weren't seeking him in faith. They weren't seeking him for the sake of knowing him. They weren't seeking him for the sake of worshiping him or or believing in him. No, they sought him for the purpose of killing him. Now, we're we're talking about a group of religious leaders who honored God with their lips, but whose hearts were just a, a million billion miles away from God. But do you realize, friends, how easy it is to be like them and to do nothing but pay lip service to God? The fact is that they might have looked like they were worshiping God, they might have sounded like they were worshiping God, but the fact is that they didn't even know God. And they certainly didn't love God. And thus they certainly didn't actually worship God. The truth became evident back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, proving that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And rather than celebrating the fact that Jesus had healed this man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years, instead they were filled with rage. Now, I would propose that they weren't really even that upset about Jesus healing on the Sabbath as much as they were upset about Jesus and the threat that he posed to their power. They were were afraid of Jesus undoing the power that they had over the people. And as we see in verse 13 here in this passage, the people were so afraid of these Jewish leaders, they, they would do whatever the Jewish leaders demanded. And the Jewish leaders knew it. And they took advantage of that. But Jesus was the one person who wasn't afraid of them, who would stand up to them. Do you remember what he did in the, in the second chapter of John when he came into Jerusalem and he drove out the money changers? All they could do was, was ask him, what sign do you, uh, do you show us as your authority for doing these things? But Jesus didn't back down from them. Instead, he responded by saying, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, he wasn't referring to the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. He was talking about, he was referring to his future resurrection from the dead on the third day. But friends, even today, there are many who hate Jesus in the same irrational way that these people did, that these Jewish leaders did. Because people, in general, by nature, want to be the one in charge. They want to be the captain of their own destiny. They want to be the one, uh, the, the pilot. You know, Jesus can be their co-pilot, but people by nature do not want Jesus to have authority over them. 
people want to be the ones in charge. They, they feel like they have the authority. They want to have the, the, the feeling that they have the authority to do whatever they want and to deem whatever is right in their own eyes rather than what God says. They, they want to have the right to decide for themselves what is right or wrong, which is, by the way, the same mentality which lies at the foundation of the My Body, My Choice slogan, which I might add is probably the single stupidest, most irrational slogan uh, for anything ever. <laughs> I mean, if you can think just an inch deep, you, you can't miss how truly irrational it truly is. But the point that I want to make is that one reason people hate Jesus is because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to anyone. It only belongs to Jesus and the practical implications of that. In other words, the way that fact carries out in our lives has everything to do with our love for sin. We reject Jesus because we don't want his authority because his authority would not allow us to freely sin. So the practical implications of that fact regarding our natural love for sin cause people to reject and and hate Jesus. People have an understanding that if you come to Jesus as he demands, it's not just coming and, and staying the same. It is coming and surrendering that sense of authority that you have over your own life and to bring it under submission to the authority of Christ. People love to feel like they're the captain of their own destiny, the writer of their own rule book, and thus by nature they persist in rebelling against God. So just as we see people in our own day and age refusing to come to Jesus, indeed hating Jesus, for this very reason, the priests in Jerusalem, they were doing the exact same thing. Their hatred of Jesus was irrational and had to do with holding on to power, holding on to a sense of control, holding on to a sense of autonomy. It was about rebellion against God. Most people, if we're being honest, if you've evangelized enough times, you you see this over and over again. Most people have no desire for Jesus and they have no desire to hear the gospel. Which is exactly, by the way, why you and I and every Christian must be going out and preaching it. We must be going out and proclaiming it, talking about it with our friends, looking for opportunities to share the truth of the gospel and the hope of the gospel. See, people are okay with with a different Jesus who will be your homie, but they won't be okay with the biblical Jesus who is Lord. People will be okay with a false Jesus who will affirm them in their sin, but they won't be okay with a true Jesus who will confront them in their sin. And so in rejecting the true biblical Jesus, all they've done is cut themselves off from the one and only means of salvation, forgiveness, and reconciliation with God. They've turned their backs on the one mediator who stands between fallen man and holy God. But our God is a God who can change the leopard spots. And if he can do that, he can change the rebellious sinner's heart. And isn't that the testimony that all of us ultimately have? And God has ordained that the power for that would be in the preaching of the gospel. So while the priests are 
talking about Jesus, wondering where he is. The people who have come to the Feast of Booths, we see, are also talking about him. The text says that they are grumbling about him, which, of course, is the same Greek, uh, Greek word um, that we saw used in the previous chapter whenever people were unhappy about something that Jesus had taught. Uh, but the grumbling was at least due in part to the fact that nobody was speaking openly about Jesus because they feared the Jewish leaders. So the question that the people were discussing among themselves was simply, who is this man? Who is this man, Jesus? And in general, there were only two positions, uh, those who thought that he was a good man and those who believed that he was evil because they thought he led people astray. Now, I want to put the same question in your hands today, friends. Who is this man, Jesus? Who do you think he is? Now, before you answer... Let me start by saying that there is one answer that we see in our text here that is absolutely impossible to give. And it's one of the two options being discussed by the people here. The impossible option is to say that Jesus was a good man. Let me explain, because I know that sounds very strange for me to say. But consider the nature of Jesus' teachings with me, and tell me if a good man would teach these things. As he taught, he clearly emphasized the fact that he had this unique relationship with the Father, with God, that neither you nor I uh, do have or can have, one that has existed for all of eternity. He taught that God had given him alone the authority to judge. He claimed that the Father had given him alone the right to give eternal life to whomever he wishes. And he claimed that you and I could enter into this relationship in which we have peace and reconciliation with God, but only if Jesus goes to the cross, dies in our place, and only if we believe in him savingly. Now, let me ask you this. If I were to come up here and make those claims about myself, if I were to come up here and and claim to have this unique relationship with God that nobody else can have unless they believe in me, would I be a good man? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be good at all. Further, Jesus taught that the entire Bible, the entire Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament were all about him. In John 5, 46, he said to the religious leaders, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. In John 8, 56, he'll say, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In other words, he claimed to have been around uh, and to have revealed something to Moses 2,000 years before this passage that we come to today. Uh, One time early in his ministry in Nazareth, Jesus went to the synagogue and was one of uh, he was the one selected to read a portion of text from the prophets. And do you know what he read? He read from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. He read that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he followed that up, that reading up, by applying that passage to himself, saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's from Luke chapter 4. Now, if I got up here and made those claims about myself, saying that the Bible was written all about me, the same way that Jesus was claiming that the Bible was written all about him, would I be a good man? No. No, I wouldn't be good at all. 
Consider further that Jesus even claimed to be able to forgive sins. Now, it doesn't matter how good you might be or how good I might be. None of us has the authority to forgive sins. That's, that's blasphemy because that's a right that only God has. Let's suppose that while I'm up here preaching, we witness a carjacking. And instead of acting, instead of doing anything, I just say, I forgive you for doing that. I wasn't the one carjacked. Who am I to say you're forgiven for doing that? You'd think that I was out of my mind, and rightfully so, because the offense wasn't even directed toward me. And yet Jesus did this on numerous occasions. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. Now again, if I got up here and did that, would I be good? Of course not. No, if any of us did that, would we be good? No, because we don't have the authority to do that. Finally, Jesus claimed multiple times and in multiple ways to be God. Now, it's kind of funny that you'll hear some people say, uh, you know, well, I don't see a place where Jesus claimed to be God. And yet the fact that he made that claim certainly didn't escape his, uh, the, the people who were there in his cultural context, right? In his historical context. They got the message loud and clear that Jesus was claiming to be God when he said, before Abraham was, I am. They got the message loud and clear when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. That was in John chapter 10, verse 30. How do we know that they got the message that Jesus was claiming to be God? Because in the very next verse, they pick up stones and they're ready to stone him to death because claiming to be God is a capital offense. Now, again, if I got up here or if anybody got up here and claimed to be God, would you think that I or they were a good person? I hope you would not. You'd be very confused about what it means to be good if you did. So you cannot claim that Jesus was just a good man. That is an impossible claim for any of us to make. No, you must. You must go beyond that and evaluate the claims that he made. In the words of C.S. Lewis, quote, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. So, why would somebody make the claims about himself that Jesus did. We really only have three options, as C.S. Lewis has laid out for us there. The first option is that he, he was crazy. That he was, he was a, a, mad, a madman, a lunatic. You know, if you walk into a, a, a mental institution, a mental ward, and have some conversations with people in there, uh, sooner or later you are going to find somebody, at least a few possibly, who claim to be God. Uh, who would claim to have the authority to forgive, perhaps, who would claim to have a relationship with the Father that nobody else has. But is that the impression that the people of Jesus' time had on him? Is that the impression that Jesus made on people of his time? Not at all. Instead, what we see is that they were astonished by his grasp of the scriptures. They were equally impressed with his ability to respond very intelligently, very logically, very biblically to the questions that were asked of him. They were perplexed by the fact that Jesus would even know things about them that nobody else in the world could possibly ever know. Think of the madman 
who, who ran around in, uh, naked in the region of the Gerasenes. What did people do with him? They just gave him space. They, they left him alone. They, they didn't want to have anything to do with him. He was just an outcast. They weren't drawn to him. But at the same time, while they weren't drawn to him, they, they didn't hate him. They were, if anything, they might have felt sorry for him. Did they treat Jesus the way that they treated the man who ran around naked in the region of the Gerasenes? No, they didn't. In fact, nobody believed Jesus to have been a madman. They either loved him or they hated him, but nobody pitied him for being mentally unstable or, or deficient in any way. Jesus was actually the sanest person who ever lived. No, Jesus was not a madman. He wasn't a lunatic. So that's the first option. The second option is to believe that Jesus was just a liar. That he made these claims, but he was just lying. He was trying to get something for himself, which is why people lie. But why do people lie? You know, it's, they lie because they feel like there's something to be gained by lying. Uh, self-preservation or uh, gaining money or self-exaltation. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but ultimately it always goes back to the person feeling like there's something to gain by not telling the truth. And yet Jesus lived as a poor man. Not as a rich man, he was a poor man, a man of, of many sorrows. When, when he had a chance to save himself before Pontius Pilate, he was silent, which even perplexed Pilate himself, because it left Pilate no option other than to authorize Jesus' execution. So if Jesus was a liar, wouldn't that have been a perfect opportunity for him to lie in order to save himself? When people came to him in John chapter 6, he taught them hard truths. Hard truths. Truths that were so offensive and so difficult to swallow that the crowds ended up abandoning him. The crowds that were, uh, were gathering around him and following him at the beginning of the chapter, they're all gone except for the 12 disciples by the end of the chapter. Now, that seems like yet another opportunity where somebody who was a liar would have said what was necessary to keep people sticking around. Jesus was actually the most truthful person who has ever lived. No, Jesus was not a liar. In fact, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Not only leaves us with one other option, friends, as to why Jesus would make all of these claims and do all of these things. And that, that last option, that third option, is that he is Lord. He is God incarnate. He actually is what he claimed to be. And if he is God incarnate, we would be wise to listen to him. We would be wise to believe in him. We would be wise to yield ourselves fully unto him. So now, let me put this question back in your hands once again. Who is this man, Jesus? Who do you think he is? Do you believe that he is God incarnate? Because to believe that he is God is actually the most rational, the most reasonable thing in the world. And if, if that's the most rational and reasonable thing in the world, then so is walking in obedience to him. So is counting the cost and forsaking you should. might prevent you from believing in him and obeying him as you should. See, in, in a world where, where so many things are so confusing and so irrational, this is the one truth that is the most reasonable and rational, rational truth that you can find. If it's true that he's God, 
then you know that this is a question, an issue that you cannot avoid forever. So why would you wait? Why would you wait? Why would you put it off? The people who were saying that Jesus was a good man were wrong. The people who said that he was an evil man who was leading people astray were wrong. Both of these groups were wrong, and both of them are making errors that would result in them rightly being under the judgment, the wrath of God. And so I urge you today, do not join them there. Do not join them there. All of us here today, like all people everywhere, must know who Jesus is in order that we may believe rightly in him. Because if you believe rightly in him, you will also act rightly in light of that fact. If you know who he is, it will change everything. If you don't know who he is, you will not believe in him the way that you ought, the way that he is worthy of. You will not come up with the right answer. If you don't know who he is, you can't worship him. So let me warn you today that if you are just familiar with Jesus, if you know things about him because you've heard some Bible stories here and there, or maybe your parents are Christians and so they've, they've exposed you to a little bit of Christianity, so you're a little bit familiar with Jesus, let me just tell you this, it's not enough. It's not enough to be just familiar with Jesus, know some things about him. Satan knows a lot of things about him. You must seek him. You must know him. You must love him. You must worship him. You must believe in him yourself. Nobody has ever been and nobody ever will be saved by simply being familiar with Jesus, knowing a few things about Jesus. And if you have done this, if you have believed in him savingly, and I pray that you have, then you must understand that the world out there needs to hear about Jesus just as badly as you once did. If nobody is telling them about Jesus, then the best that they can do is imagine him to be something like themselves. But that is not who Jesus is. And without knowing who Jesus is, a person cannot believe in him rightly. So Jesus calls you to follow him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him, to trust and obey, even if it means facing the condemnation of the world. And I'm here today to tell you that it's worth it. That it's worth it. It's actually the best decision you could ever make. It is better that you actually suffer the rejection and the scorn of man as Jesus' friends than it is that you prosper and be liked by the world as Jesus' enemy. And so I urge you, I beg you, friends, know him rightly. Know him as he's revealed in God's word. Believe in him rightly, no matter what the cost is. Because what you think of the president ultimately doesn't matter. Even what you think of me, uh, despite what my flesh would sometimes tell me, (laughs) doesn't ultimately matter. But what you think about Jesus matters. So who is this man, Jesus? Will you be too afraid to speak his name before others? Will you be ashamed to call him Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Master, or Will you believe that he is Lord, 
and submit to him joyfully. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you for the way that it nourishes us, the way that it conforms us to the image of Christ, the way it confronts us with eternity-altering questions. And thank you that by your grace, you have opened our eyes to believe You have turned our our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that love you, that worship you, all by your grace. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to die in our place. As foolish a thought as that is to the world, it is your saving power unto us. And so we thank you for that truth, that Jesus took our sin upon himself and laid upon those who believe his very righteousness, that we may stand before you justified, redeemed, forgiven. Thank you for the fact that Jesus paid it all. Thank you for overcoming our rebellion against you. In exchange, Lord, please give us the conviction to be lights in this dark world, lights that that point to Christ, a people who are courageous in bringing Christ to a lost and broken world that needs life, the life that's only found in Christ. Give us courage, give us opportunities, give us grace that we may honor and glorify him not only with our lips, but with our hearts, with our lives. All for Christ's glory. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.